Good morning. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today. And last week, as Robert pointed out, Paul was addressing the quarreling, the jealousy, the divisions that were taking place in the Corinthian church. And he pointed out how that immaturity was the cause of that and referred to them basically as being like babies that needed milk rather than the solid food. It's in that background that he then now begins chapter 4 with this. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. So as we read chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is now taking more of a parental tone as he's addressing some of these issues in the church. And since it is Mother's Day, one of the illustrations I came across talks about the servanthood of mothers. And this teacher had been teaching her second grade class about magnets and the properties of magnets. And so after they had gone through and dis discussed the different things that magnets do, she gave them a test. But since her second grader, she gave them some clues. She said, I, the question started out, I begin with M and I have six letters in my name and I pick things up. What am I? And she was astounded that 50% of her students put down the word mother as the answer to that question. And it is true that mothers do pick things up. They too take on that servant role. But being a good mother involves a lot more than that. And that's what Paul is kind of pointing out to the immature Christians. It requires providing an atmosphere where each member finds acceptance and security and understanding, like a mother does for her family and her children. And for a Christian mother, just like for any Christian leader, the greatest joy is leading and showing people how to be connected with the love of Jesus Christ. And that all comes through servanthood. And that's what Paul is talking about. As a leader, being a servant. But then he goes on to talk about being entrusted with the secret things of God. But what's that all about? I mean, he could be referring to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 9 talks about the words are closed up and sealed until the end times. So a lot of that prophecy in Daniel is hard to understand and hard, hard to comprehend because of all the symbolism it uses. The book of Revelation is very similar. It has so much symbolism in it, lots of people like to try to figure out what all that means. That this could be the secret things of God. But in chapter 10 of Revelation, it even talks, John is about to write down what he's just heard the seven thunders talking about. And then he's told, no, don't write down what was said. Seal it up for a later time. Or maybe it's simply something like Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians. Again, when he's defending his ministry in chapter 12, in verse 4, he talks about being caught up into paradise and hearing inexpressible things that men are not permitted to tell. Or Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9, talks about my thoughts and my ways are not your ways. My thoughts and my ways are basically higher than the heavens are above the earth. My ways are higher than the earth and the heavens are. 
through all those things give us a sense that there's a lot of things about God that are mysterious, that are secrets, that we just can't comprehend. But that doesn't mean that we should not try to understand. But going back to what at least makes sense to me is in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but things revealed to us belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So Moses has just given this very long sermon, knowing that the end of his life is coming. And in this sermon, right before this statement, he talks about, you know, the blessings and the curses and how obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings curses. And then he boils it down. And we don't have to worry about all the things that we don't understand. Let's just try to do the things that we do understand. James chapter 1 verse 22 puts it this way. Don't merely listen to God's word and deceive yourself. Do what it says. So I think when Paul is talking about the secret things of God, he's not necessarily telling us that we should spend all our time trying to determine what some of these prophecies mean. I think he's talking about the basics. So what are the basics? Go back to Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And then we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. He then goes on to say, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So again, from my simple way of looking at the world, I don't worry that much about end times prophecies and all the symbolism that's talked about in Revelations or Daniel or other places in the Bible like Ezekiel. I try to worry about putting into practice what I do understand and living that in my life. And I think that's part of what Paul is trying to tell the church of Corinth. And that has certainly has application for us today. In a book that I've been reading called Search for Significance by Robert McGee, he quotes from 1 Peter chapter 1, again, and getting back to the basics, verses 3 through 4. Praise to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Then in his book, I'm just going to read part of this quote from him. Of what is Peter convinced? Because of reconciliation, we are completely acceptable to and by God. We enjoy a full and complete relationship with him. His determination of our value is not based on our performance. In other words, we don't have to worry about this immature jealousy and who's following the most eloquent leader or who has the best place at the table. Getting back to his quote. When we're born again, as spiritual beings in right standing with God, we're still tilted, though, towards the world's way of thinking. We've been conditioned by the world's perspective and values. We find it hard to break away. Indeed, when Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth, he called them men of flesh. In other words, that immature believers, infants that needed milk. 
Though born of the Spirit and equipped with the provisions in Christ, these individuals had yet to develop into complete mature believers God intended them to be. And we talked about that last week when Robert spoke on 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So again, going on with his quote, many of us are like the Christians at Corinth. We still try to obtain our significance the world's way through their success and approval. And often we only look to other believers rather than Christ himself. We learn to use the right Christian words, claim divine power and guidance and organize programs, yet so often our spiritual facade lacks any depth and substance. Our spiritual activities become human efforts lacking real touch of the master. In effect, we live a lie. Which takes us to verse 2 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians where Paul describes us as leaders, as being managers. We're stewards. We're supposed to be trustworthy and faithful. And that applies to all of us who are following Christ. So what do we do then if we're to remain trustworthy and faithful and not just trying to go through the motions? I think it starts with not basing our self-worth on other people's opinions or even our own opinions, but looking at the opinion of God. What does God say about us? Because just like the Christian in Corinth, and again, this is a quote from McGee's book, the desire for success and approval constitutes the basis of an addictive, worldly self-worth. And withdrawal from this dependency can cause us some pain as we change the basis of our self-worth. Yet when we begin to discover the true freedom and maturity in Christ, only when we understand that our lives mean much more than what success or the approvals of others can bring. And I would add to that even our own approval. Then Paul tries to call us back to humility. Verses 7 through 8 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as you did not? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and without us. And the verse goes on. But how does that apply to us? Because it applies to us just like it does the Christians in Corinth who are struggling with immaturity. We have to come to realize, and again this is a quote from McGee's book, we can do nothing to contribute to Christ's free gift of salvation. Furthermore, if we base our self-worth on the approval of others, then we're actually saying that our ability to please others is of more value than Christ's payment. In other words, that self-worth based on the world is more important than Christ's blood. The reality is, this is his quote again, we are the sinners, we're the depraved, the wretched, and the helpless. He is the loving Father the seeking, searching, patient Savior who has made atonement for the lost and extended to us his grace and sonship. We add nothing to our salvation. It's God who seeks us out and convicts us of sin and reveals himself to us. It is God who gives us the very faith with which to accept him. Our faith is simply a response to what he has done for us. So again, how does that play out? What is that cost of being trustworthy and faithful and mature? Again, it gets back to basing 
everything on what Jesus has already done for us. Paul goes on to say later on that it matters very little what other people's opinions are. And he even goes on to say it really doesn't matter what his own opinion is. It only matters what Jesus Christ's opinion is. So as leaders and as followers of Christ, we need to learn that one of the costs is developing that sacrificial servant leadership. The book of Philippians describes that real well in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all of that. But it talks about not doing anything out of selfish ambition. So why, what's our motive? Our motive to be tender, to be compassionate. Not to look out for only our own interests, but the interests of others. Now it's important to realize that it's okay to look out for some of our own interests. We need to do that. You need to eat well. Sleep well, exercise well, to keep that body. As Robert pointed out, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be available for God's service. And that requires us to be good stewards of our body as well. That's another sermon, so I'll try to get off that tangent. But it goes on to say that we should have the same attitude like Christ, who gave up everything that he had in heaven. Come and save us. To give us the model to follow, the ultimate sacrifice. Again, this quote from McGee, I think, puts it so well. So then our worth lies in the fact that Christ's blood has paid for our sins. Therefore, we're reconciled to God. We're accepted on that basis alone. But does that great truth indicate we don't need other people in our lives? On the contrary, God very often uses other believers to demonstrate his love and acceptance to us. And the strength and comfort and encouragement and the love of Christians towards one another are visible expressions of God's love. However, our acceptance and worth does not depend on others' acceptance of us, even if they're fellow believers. Whether they accept us or not, we're still deeply loved, completely forgiven, fully pleasing, totally accepted and complete in Christ. He alone, the final authority on our worth and our acceptance. And I think the life of William Borden illustrates that. I'm not going to go through his life in great detail. He was born in 1887. He was born into a very wealthy family, which is kind of becomes very apparent because when he graduated from high school at the age of 17, they gave him a trip around the world. He went to Europe, he went to the Middle East, he went to Asia. He was a Christian, though, and so as he traveled around the world, his heart started to develop a yearning to share the gospel with people around the world. So he came back home, went to Yale, and graduated and did different ministry opportunities that he could there. And of course, graduating from Wales, coming from the family they came from, he had numerous lucrative offers he could have accepted to thrive here in the United States. But his heart was set. One of his professors, because he went on to Princeton, was really pointing out in very fervent ways that there is a large Muslim group in Northwest China. Actually, there was more Muslims there than in Egypt. And this was new information to Borden. And so his heart 
was centered. He wanted to carry the gospel there because as his mentor is pointing out, there was not even one Christian witness that was known to be in that area. So he wanted to be that. So he joined up with China Inland Mission after graduating from Princeton. And he went to Cairo in Egypt to study Arabic before going to China. And after being there for just a few weeks, he developed cerebral meningitis. He suffered for a few weeks. Then he died on April 9th, 1913, at the age of 25. And some versions of his life have said that they found his Bible, and in his Bible were written in various places these words. But the historian that I looked at for this said basically they found a note under his pillow. It makes sense. He was ill, pouring out his heart to God. And on this note, under his pillow was written the words, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Now, William Borden was a bright person. He probably knew that he was dying, barring a miracle from the Lord. But yet he did not see his life as a waste because he wanted to be a servant and just follow where Christ leads. And that's the calling that Paul is giving to the Corinthian church. That's the call that Paul is giving to us. Follow Jesus as a servant so that God gets the glory. To join me in prayer. Father, we do praise you for all that you've done. And we just give you thanks, Lord, that our value to, do, to you doesn't depend on anything we can do. It depends totally on what your son Jesus did. And we praise you for that. Amen.